I want to be a part of the movement of storytellers that are telling history based on, you know, what they know as often as they can so that we have the most diverse and um, a more accurate telling of this time. Mm-hmm. And so if I believe that that's the case, then I need to investigate, you know, well, what in what area do I see more because I know more? That was photojournalist and documentary photographer Ash Adams. Ash's work tends to focus on people and stories about humanity and elevating the voices and experiences that have historically been underrepresented. In her work, this includes actively dismantling stereotypes by highlighting indigenous voices and advocating for gender equity. She says that one role of photojournalism is to show what inequity feels like so that others may understand, and that if we diversify the voices that are telling the narratives and are writing history, then we're going to have a documented history that is more reflective of what actually happened. So here she is, Ash Adams. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Now that you are safely tucked away in the closet, (laughs) so we can get good audio, (laughs) how would you describe your work? Um... I mean, the most straightforward definition of everything I do is just putting it under an umbrella of um, documentary photography or photojournalism. And even the work that I do that is slightly more conceptual still is usually fairly um, documentary in nature. Um, I mostly photograph people and stories that... um, have a strong human component. So even if they're environmental, they're still usually human led narratives. So I think, I think those are the main things that I would say. (laughs) You know, how did you get into photojournalism and documentary photography? Um, so I started making photos as a teenager. I ended up in a photo, just a photography class with a really wonderful um, teacher. And it was kind of a slow process of finding photojournalism throughout my teen years. There wasn't, um, I was, it was the only kind of photography I was interested in making without knowing that that was a field. And then I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and the best or one of the best photojournalism programs in the country to date um, is in southeastern Ohio. So getting connected with the photojournalism program there was fairly easy because it was in the same state. But it was more that the work that I made and the work that I like to look at was um, photojournalism and long-form documentary photography. So just from looking at work and um, immersing myself in the study of that, I came to that. (laughs) These photos or this work that you were talking about that you just naturally gravitated toward, what did that work look like? Um, You know, like really iconic 
shooters like Mary Ellen Mark. Um, it was work that found a way to find humanity wherever it was um, and really um, not lean into stereotypes while photographing situations that were often stereotyped. So photographing poorer communities, photographing, you know, outsiders. So even like Dean Arbus, who, you know, is out there photographing like circus people and performers and mm-hmm. um, kind of finding a way to connect with people from really different spaces um, than themselves. So, so th- those kind of that, that kind of work that was really straightforward um, photojournalism, but was really narrative led. And then I also was one of many people in my generation that saw a war photographer and was like, yes, like I want to go be a conflict photographer. Um, I was definitely sold to the idea of the, you know, photographer running into the dust storm after like, you know, this heightened, exciting experience. (laughs) Yeah. You know, something that you, you just said earlier was that you gravitated toward photographers that didn't lean into stereotypes Mm -hmm. when you're looking at one of their photographs how do you interpret that how did you know that they weren't leaning into those stereotypes at the time I I didn't you know like I think a lot of my current thoughts on photojournalism and the industry and inequities and um issues with the way that we've historically told stories has only come from time in the field Mm -hmm. um but so I don't know that I I didn't know that, but I think when I look at the work that I liked the most back then, I like it now for those reasons. And I so I think I didn't have the words for it. And also it's worth noting in attending Ohio University or, you know, being in um, Appalachia, there's, you know, a 27 or there was, I can't speak now, but when I was in school, there was a 27% unemployment rate um, surrounding the university. And so a lot of the work that students were making was on these very poor communities. And so you kind of started to get a flavor for like, you know, what was overdone, what was missing um, humanity and resilience and um, character. And so then the other work that you would see, you know, like Mary Ellen Mark's work, um, really did the opposite where you saw people photographed as these um, whole and grounded humans in their environment. And it felt as though you were getting an objective viewpoint. And while Mm -hmm. that's not ever possible, (laughs) um, it felt like you were not looking down or judging the subject or photographing with, you know, this um, overdone, uh, kind of like poverty porn angle, like there was a different kind of humanity coming through. Yeah, you were looking at it or considering it based on its own merits, not through the exact lens of of the person kind of capturing it, possibly, or or maybe the narrative that they're trying to push. Yeah. And I think, I think it's just like when you, when you see a photograph of a person and you feel that you know something about them or that you want to know more, or you feel a kind of closeness to them, like it's, it's that feeling that I think really makes a photograph iconic or makes people care about the image. And so it's like, and that, that thing 
that is hard to describe. It's hard to describe because it's in the photo. <laughs> and so it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's that part where if you can say exactly what the photo is, that you might not have to make a photo because it's literal at that point. <laughs> but yeah. that, that, um, that, that kind of magic that happens that has come through the image, I think is um, the thing that many of us strive for. And, um, uh, you know, every now and again might get (laughs) but (laughs) you know i wanted to go back real quick to the photography class Mm -hmm. that you took that was kind of this pivotal moment in your career or what would soon become your career or what would eventually become your career so i read that you know when you were a kid you felt out of place until you took that photography class in high school. What was it about that class that turned everything around for you? I mean, I think part of it was the teacher. Like I, um, like I came into my teens with trauma and like, like little T trauma and like big T trauma and, um, was, uh, very bright, but also very angry and very, um, like didn't didn't know where to put a lot of that and so the teacher himself like he was somebody that um and he saw this for both my sister and i but he just i think saw us and saw that we you know we could find an outlet this way Mm -hmm. and so one i think it was that he was a trauma-informed before there that was a normal term um but two it was that um when if you feel like you're out of place or you grew up in circumstances where you felt like the eye of a tornado and you are just still and witnessing something, um, it's hard to feel like you belong anywhere. And the second that I had a camera, it didn't matter if I felt out of place or if I was in a, um, a large group setting or, um, you know, or if I felt afraid, like if I was actually feeling triggered somewhere, like the camera kind of gave me this like um, armor mm-hmm. where I belonged. I deserved to be there. And what I was seeing um, was what um, it, it kind of it gave me a way to process to whatever I was seeing or feeling in those spaces. So, um, yeah, did I answer that? I kind of rambled, I think. Yeah, no, that was great. <laughs> I, I I was thinking of... Or I was trying to think of how to describe that because I've encountered that a number of times myself with different things throughout my life where, and I'll just repeat what you said because I I thought it was so great was, you know, this camera made it feel like you belonged in that, in that moment or in that space. And I feel like it's almost like, um, I don't know, like Superman's cape, Mm -hmm. you know, like I belong here because you found a calling. Totally. And I think there are a lot of young people that they haven't come into this, like, you know, I am the self with a capital S. So like I intrinsically belong in the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so before you can come to any sort of place like that, if you even get there, it's like the camera kind of just gives you, um, a way to stay human and stay around the humans. (laughs) Yeah. Stay around the humans. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that photography helped you work through that anger that you were talking about earlier? 
I think so. But I also, I mean, I think the process of documenting the process of um, working through that also is part of it. You know, the um, there is one instructor from uh, undergrad who about photographing really sensitive stories and a lot of um, photographers throughout our whole career, you know, there are moments where you are questioning, like, should I be photographing this? What is the value to the narrative? Does the person want this to be photographed? Like, and you're trying to figure out how to navigate um, the fact that an image lasts. And if you photograph for the New York Times, or you photograph for the Washington Post or anybody else, and you make this image of this intimate, this intimate moment, and it is you can't take it back once you send it to the editor, you know, like you, yeah. you go through this process of being like, what is the value of this? And he talked about, he shared a personal experience that he had had of um, photographing a super intimate story and how, um, and how he has come to justify it through all of the people that he has spoken to afterwards, where they felt like they got something back because they were able to, take control of their narrative in a tangible way by sharing this part of their story. And so I feel like just the process of documenting my own life and what was happening around me and, um, you know, just making art throughout the years has been a way of kind of putting the narrative in a tangible place. And, um, and there's just there's value to that for me. And I can't I can't entirely articulate it other than to say that um, you can have a feeling that isn't fact, um, but it still is there and holds weight. And you can make art that is um, it, it feels a little closer to fact. And so it like somehow lets you mm-hmm. really process that part and um, feel through it, but also give yourself this like intellectual distanced view of it do you feel like you've ever been in a position to have to justify one of your photos oh i mean i think i'd have to be in the position to i've never had the experience of being attacked for something i photographed um i've never um i've I've never received outward criticism for anything that i have photographed and that's not to say that there isn't criticism it has to exist i just like i have not been trolled in any way for anything i photographed um but i mean i would say like i personally have to justify work that i make and Mm um you know like i do a lot of work in cultures that i don't come from and i have strong opinions that we need to have less or we have to make it more equitable so that it isn't um, always Westerners telling the stories. Um, Mm -hmm. And so typically when I'm doing work like that, I am going through a process of justifying or or figuring out if I am uniquely qualified to tell this story. If I am, if it is important that I am the one doing it and if it's not me, um, how do I find or, 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 you know, reaching out or referring or finding the person that should be photographing it or, or I feel should be photographing it? Um, I mean, so I guess like, yeah, I have never received outward criticism, but I think that that conversation of am I the person to make these photos? Um, will I do justice to the story? Like that's a constant um, like daily <laughs> thought um, anytime I'm in the field. And I think that those are healthy things to ask yourself because I think that 
the photographer who doesn't ask themselves that question on a regular basis might find themselves in situations where they are exploiting cultures and people. I think, and again, I don't think that most people, like I believe fully that most people are doing exactly what they think is the right thing to do, um, which is important when we're very divided mm -hmm. in this country to remember that everyone is mostly doing exactly what they think is right. And so um, there's just, um, everybody is on their journey. And so they come to understand <laughs> things at their own pace and at their own speed. And so even when people are behaving or, or doing something that is exploitative or they write an article, for instance, that maybe they shouldn't um, have written and then they receive criticism from it. I feel like it's the how you receive the criticism, because in this day and age, you will receive it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know? yeah. So it's like it comes down to like, you know, how do you receive it after that? But I think so. I think that, you know, yes, people do end up exploiting others in this industry all the time. I think most of the time it's unintentional, which doesn't change anything. But <laughs> um, it's so then it's like the what you do after that. I think that matters. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy way to look at it. How do you think your upbringing and that experience in that photography class has motivated or influenced the kind of projects you pursue? Um, I think I honestly think it's been in the last few years that I've actually started to make connections between um, what I what I see doing even in the, the next 10 years and how that relates to where I've come from. Cause I think for most people in this field, especially like there's a level of escapism and we were again, sold this idea of like, you know, the explorer and like, you know, which is so colonizer mentality, um, but like um, the going into the unknown versus the going back to where you came from and um, actually what, you know. Um, and so I feel like it's like until, until the last several years, like I haven't really turned towards those parts of me yet. But I think the themes of, um, you know, class issues, um, trauma, women's issues, um, all of those things have been a part of my work since the beginning. And those are personally motivated. And they're, they're motivated in a more um, distanced and political way, I think, which makes it easier to find those stories and to do them. But those, um, you know, identifying that that's actually something that I need to focus on. And then like some other really specific sub stories that I also am uniquely like in, absolutely uniquely qualified to do, like in feeling like I need to, you know, help bring up people to photograph, you know, in other places here and then kind of go back and um, uh, piece together some of my past uh, through working, you know, is kind of a newer development, I think. Do you know what spurred that development? I think just, um, again, just like the years in the industry and um, the, the myth of the explorer that is going into other territory and um, mythologizing entire groups of people and coming back with like, you know, their discovery as product. Like that is so pervasive still in this industry. <laughs> and I think that the... Um, you know, like looking at what that does or, you know, societally, how influential the stories that we tell ourselves are mm -hmm. and how slow change is because um, history 
and the narratives that we have come up on are so strong um, and seeing the inequity of who's telling the story and then looking critically at where we are as a society and um, where we are not functioning globally um, and how intrinsically tied that is to who is telling the story and how and who is documenting history and why that matters. <laughs> and and so thinking about all of those things, it's like I I want to be a part of the movement of storytellers that are telling history based on, you know, what they know as often as they can so that we have the most diverse and um, a more accurate telling of this time. Mm -hmm. And so if I believe that that's the case, then I need to investigate, you know, well, what, in what area do I see more because I know more, you know? And, um, and so that's, I, I think it's like all of those things. And, and again, my criticisms on the industry are, you know, in, in trying to address like that we need to diversify our industry is it's not just me saying it like we're all many of us are saying it. Um, so I don't want to, you know, uh, not acknowledge that. But um, that's what I just think it's been the last few years of really identifying those things and um, just deciding that I I need to represent something that I know deeply um, for myself, for the world, for history's sake, um, and kind of do that. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but there's this idea that stories about Alaska and Alaskans have a tendency to be extracted from Alaskan cultures rather than authentically conveying the voices of the locals. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that's absolutely fair to say. Um, and I think it's um, it's time for that to change. And it's hard for it to change because, um, well, for like a whole litany of reasons. Um, but that's not to say that it's impossible. There are many people in Indigenous communities across Alaska that um, I think want to tell the stories and want to be that voice. And so it's a matter of like bridging, like, how do we get your voice in the times? Like, how do we get your photos in this place? And mm -hmm. how do we, um, you know, because there's, um, and there are many things to do, I think, uh, to make all of those things happen. But so I think that there are journalists, and I, I try to be this person myself, um, that go into a community having you know there's usually an idea of the story that you're going there for you wouldn't be going there but that knows that they don't you know themselves know the story and that it's not that we as journalists do not own any story like it's not ours it's theirs and finding a way to um ask all the questions and come to something without expectation and also to ask the question um which is something i ask in every community i'm in which is like where have people been getting it wrong? You know, like, tell me, like, show me, like, tell me how people are getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, I don't do the same thing. Because if more than one person is getting the same thing wrong, there might be a reason that outsiders are missing something. So I think there's, um, but so, yeah, I think that it, who's telling the story matters. And when I go into any community, 
it everything looks new to me. I'm going to take the same photos that most people take when they first land there because there is something that is that is different than where people that don't live in that community are from. But if you spend any time in that community, eventually you would see that everyone comes and makes that photo of that thing. And it's not interesting at all. And like, there's this other whole other thing. And so the people that are living there are the ones that are going to know that. So, um, so I guess I think of a lot of journalism as having this like collaborative component to it, um, that has to be carefully ethically navigated, but that, um, it's really important that it's clear that it's not my story (laughs) that I'm telling. Do you find comfort in going to a place or working on a project with no expectations? You know, you just go in and you're doing your job and you're taking photos of, of what is happening. I, I mean, I do. Um, but I, and again, like there's usually a reason you're going there. So you're going there and if you can go to a place and you're like, I'm going to explore this broad topic and, um, it makes sense to go here because, but to not have a narrative lead yet, to not know where the story magic is. Like, I like that part. I like the part of waiting to find where is the arc that I can visually explore here. Um, I also like when there's just a really linear (laughs) story to follow as long as um, there's an ability to have the intimacy and the access to really do that. But I just think a lot of stories are, they're happening in real time. So just knowing that you have the time to be there and to just really spend it there is kind of, I think, the best case scenario and the thing many of us are always fighting for. (laughs) time. (laughs) For sure. You know, the reason that I asked that question is because, you know, earlier on when I first started, you know, doing the journalism thing, I, I had this idea in my head that I needed to kind of get all the information, uh, that I could out of people. And then also to be able to you know, accurately describe like their whole life, you know, rather than just just being a part of whatever this is going to be and come as prepared as I can be. And the latter, you know, being as prepared as I can be and then just experiencing what it's going to be has been much more fulfilling. Totally. I agree. I think it's easier to take yourself out of it too. And like, you don't have any preconceived idea of where it's going. Yeah. And, and allowing yourself to be surprised. Totally. Which is the best. (laughs) It really is. You know, you know, I, I just wrote this question down because it just came to me, but do you think that as an Alaskan photographer, you're in a unique position to set new standards on how we document indigenous cultures? Oof. Um, I mean, I think that indigenous people would have to answer that okay. <laughs> because I think um, for I think I think for me, I can't say whether I should set the new standard. I can say that I. I'm always open to learning and always open to adjusting my process and value value the thing that's happening in real time um, more than my image. So like the impact on a person 
and how important it is to protect people. Like I value all of that. And I think that that is an ethical standard we should have in all communities, but especially communities where there is a history of exploitation. Like there's this entire, you know, full wheel thing of exploitation happening when you think about in indigenous Alaska, um, being here and then, you know, first contact, second contact, colonizers coming in, um, taking away or temporarily putting to sleep because they are, many are reviving, but putting to sleep, like, you know, valuable cultural traditions, uh, separating families, everything that has happened, you know, in the process of colonization and assimilation, and then um, all the changes that have happened since then. And many of these communities are suffering um, the social side effects of, you know, cultural trauma, in addition to suffering, like, you know, severe climate change, which is also linked to globalization, industrialization, you know, the Western Mm -hmm. world. And so then when you send in outsider photographers and you send them there to then document the social side effects of colonization and the results of globalization and industrialization it just like completes the circle where like like we're constantly taking something <laughs> so i feel like that acknowledgement is the thing that i would like all outsider photographers to have because i don't think that it's wrong um that i have photographed in cultures that aren't my own i think that it's worth always questioning whether it should be me um but i think coming in with that understanding that there is this um history is super important and i think moving forward as an alaskan photographer i am just hoping to um build up as many people that are in rural Alaska, indigenous Alaska, to be able to do this work in their own communities and just assist in that way, any way that I can, um, so that they can set the standard on what, on how people should be (laughs) photographing in indigenous communities. Yeah, that's great. And, and maybe a more accurate way to ask that question would have been to say that you're in a unique position to be part of how indigenous cultures are documented. Yes, totally. Absolutely. And it is, I am so grateful for it. I've learned so much. <laughs> you know, I think this is another question that we, we kind of touched on, but I, I'll just get into it. Go for <laughs> so it. So I think that sometimes when someone like a journalist or a photographer goes to a place to tell a story, it might not be obvious to them that they're co-opting these experiences and long-held traditions, beliefs, and life ways, and that they need to be more thoughtful in how they tell that story, which you, you know, got to with asking yourself these certain questions, like, am I the right person to tell this story? What, in your opinion, would be a better way to share stories about Alaska? Hmm. I think that the better thing that we need is just more people of color in general all over the u.s telling stories like not even just in alaska you know like um and i say that you know for many reasons like we could look to what happened with george floyd and then look at the coverage and dissect that and accept the fact that most of the people covering the protests following george floyd's death were white men and that is what our industry still looks like. So it's like, I think the better way to tell stories anywhere is to diversify the voices telling it mm-hmm. um, for that same reason of just like the more that you know, the more you see. 
And so the more, the deeper that conversation is going to be. Um, so I think, and social media has been great in one aspect because people have been all kind of seeing values in the kind of visual documentation like of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I don't know what, what I would say a better way of sharing stories beyond, um, beyond, like I said, just building up uh, a more diverse group of people who are telling them. And then also that extends to like, who's at the editor's desks and who, you know, like who's deciding which images are being shown and are you fighting for the images that, um, the images that you know need to be in the story um, for these very specific reasons because you did this research, because you spent the time with the people and all those things. So I think it's just like a, I don't know. <laughs> like, are you asking more about that process or is there another medium to be telling stories in? Um, well, you know, one thing that just came to mind as you were as you were talking and rambling. I, I believe that you did answer it. <laughs> OK, I, I believe that, you know, what? I, I actually like rambling. But, awesome. um, <laughs> but I think that what I believe that you were you were getting to where you, that you were saying is that these things are just happening naturally, you know, as much uh, flack as we give social media, it is also the thing that is showing us what's happening at these protests. You know, what's happening, like like feet on the ground. This is just a, a person filming, you know, this stuff happening. And we're able to see that kind of unfiltered rather than kind of picked through by, by certain news sources. So I think that exposing ourselves to stuff like that and realizing that the narrative that's played in these these institutions that we've believed in for so long isn't the only narrative and maybe it's not always the right narrative right and or maybe it's just missing it like really innocently like yeah. <laughs> unintentionally missing it totally yeah and yeah. i think um there's this like um i want to see if i still have it on here i had it on my desktop for a long time cuz i just was like blown away that it happened um but there was this New York Times headline that was since changed um, that got called out. But when it first showed up in my feed, I think I just like was online at the right time. So it just popped in my feed. But it said, you know, the rise of right wing extremism and how we missed it. And it like showed Charlottesville like protests or the protesters um, with their torches in this photo. And I shared it right away. And I was like, we like we missed it. And I was like, so it's completely clear what the we means. Like, cause black people didn't miss it. They've been living it, mm-hmm. you know, like brown people did not miss it. And so, um, so I mean, you know, and your times got called out by many different publications shortly after I myself called them out. So I think, you know, people are paying attention to those things, but it's it's just worth noting that like these institutions that we love and we trust and um, that often I believe are striving for the most objective journalism and are doing such great hard hitting investigative work that does change um, things for the better, I believe. Um, but they still get it wrong. Like everyone gets it wrong <laughs> sometimes. So I don't know. And that's like a whole other, you know, again, discussion of like, well, how do you handle it after it's wrong? So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that those, those meetings at those legacy organizations, um, 
where they all sit down and they kind of debate the merits of, you know, this piece of news versus that piece of news. How do we how do we describe this event? Do we use this word? Do we use that word? I think that those are those meetings are extremely helpful and progressive to better telling those stories. Totally. You're a big advocate for women and diverse voices in media. Was there a specific reason or maybe reasons that you started advocating for more women and diverse voices in media? I mean, I think it's been, again, just like my experience personally is that I I walked into, you know, the undergraduate community I was in and um, and then into this field and, you know, struggled with the same imposter syndrome that I think a lot of uh, women and people of color. Um, um, but for me, I can just speak for women like experience and, um, you know, have throughout my career noticed sexism, have throughout my career noticed that women often, you know, believe that they have this choice of, well, I can have babies or I can, you know, be a journalist or, you know, and like they're they're presented with these choices that are only choices because our society is super imbalanced, like on the whole mm-hmm. and our interpersonal relationships are imbalanced and, you know, every, every part of society is still imbalanced. Um, and so, you know, just, just like being a woman in the, in a male dominated field, I think makes you think about like, well, like how do we change that? Because, if you look at the news, the news is still very um, male dominated in its sections. And that's like, you know, the business section, the politics section, section, sports, um, war. It has been historically and I think currently still is easier to f- put a an image of a graphic, you know, explosion or piece of, you know, conflict on the front page of a newspaper than it is to like put a photograph of a woman breastfeeding. And it's like our, the female experience um, is so underrepresented. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I started to understand that more in just becoming a mother and how much I didn't know anything about like anything. And all of these um, moments that I was just documenting in my personal life um, and you know, all of those things. But then also just like the awareness that the likelihood of having trauma if you're a female is, you know, astronomical. And um, how are we as a society documenting inequity and injustice if the people telling the story are part of the mainstream culture? Um, and then I also was married to a, an, a you know, co-parent and partner in many ways to an back photographer um, Brian Adams and Brian, um, you know, is 
has been representing indigenous people in Alaska for his whole career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even he, you know, he was raised in the city. So we, he would have these conversations a lot where he's even trying to decide like, like where does he fit in into telling the story about rural indigenous Alaska if he has been indigenous in the city. And, um, and so finding his own identity in that way too. But so a lot of our conversations as two minorities in this, um, field that is dominated by people that aren't like us. Um, you know, that's just, that was just something that was a constant conversation in our relationship and, um, and still is a constant conversation in our like professional collaborations and co-parenting existence. So, um, yeah. So I think it's all of those things. And then again, when you see things like, um, George Floyd's death and, um, Ferguson and these, these, you know, awful things that are happening and they are still being documented mostly by people that don't understand what it would mean to fear dying at a traffic pull-off, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and, and have not lived with that level of hypervigilance and, um, internal stress, um, throughout their life. And I think that there are many voices that are, um, it's documenting or starting to document those things. Have you talked to your kids about these tragic events that have happened and had to explain to them, you know, as a parent, like, how do you make sense of this? Yeah, I mean, I've always been, um, one, I read the news and I have a lot of friends in this industry. So there's a lot of, you know, just FaceTime calls or like speakerphone calls um, at various times of the day where we're talking about work people are making um, or work that, you know, I'm making, they're making. Mm -hmm. So like the conversations about current events are pretty frequent in the house. And I, I feel like to not talk with your kids about history, it takes something from them because they're going to read about it (laughs) and they were alive during it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and so with George Floyd, you know, like we sat there and we looked at images um, and we, I talked about what happened and um, my son is extremely sensitive and was teary eyed right away. And he's had a respiratory issue, um, just like a, you know, asthma throughout his life. So he knows what it means to not be able to breathe. Mm -hmm. And so George Floyd's death and the discussions of um, just how he died. And again, like I'm not being graphic with, with my children because I don't want them to like they don't need that in their brain, but I am explaining what happened. Um, but the idea that someone couldn't breathe and that no one stopped it was impactful to him. But the thing that I thought was, um, and I always think is interesting in showing children images and just explaining what happened. Um, I watched their reaction in terms of deciding like what the right course of action is or what, what would be more just. And, um, I was showing photos of, you know, the protests and, you know, they're burning down, you know, police stations and, and things like that. And my son's reaction wasn't, and my daughter's, like, my daughter was just like curious and she was like, was anyone in there? Like, you know, was everybody okay? Yeah. Um, um, but my son was just like, well, maybe the smoke will remind them what it feels like not to breathe. And he just like, it's like, mic drop you know so yeah like his ability to sit there and say to see how um scary the protests themselves looked um but to know that a man died that way in front of other people and to think that their reaction wasn't that irrational 
Like I, I agree, you know, I internally agree um, that he was, that he could see that by just seeing what the situation was. So, you know, we talk about it and then it comes back to race for them um, because their dad is Brown and their conversations again about this are fascinating. You know, uh, my daughter asked, you know, do we have to worry about, you know, Papa? Like is Papa, could Papa get shot? And I was like, yeah, like, you know, he could, he's not going to, you know, like, and that's what you tell your children. He's not going to, but like, but yes, like native people do die at a much higher rate in these confrontations. Um, and, you know, then, you know, she looks at her brother cause they both look like they, you can't tell that they're native unless you know, um, what mixed indigenous children look like. And so she looks at, you know, my son and she's like, well, but we're, we're white. So we're safe. And my son looked at her and he said, no, we pass. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's eight, you know? Um, but so he already understands like what it means to look different in the society and what um, risk it poses. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that they don't appear brown is a privilege or it gives them privilege. And that like, so that's where I feel like as a parent, it would be, it's important to discuss these things because I want them to grow up understanding what it means to have privilege and what it would mean to not have it um, so that they're not just, you know, continuing some cycle of exploitation without <laughs> meaning to. Um, so anyways, so yes, we talk about all of the things. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I, I feel like I have a tendency to, to ask about that when I'm talking to a parent with, with young kids, because I think young kids have this really like beautiful, unique capability of just whittling it down to the basics of human decency, you know, and, and just pointing out the really obvious stuff. And just like you said, a mic drop where you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, I I didn't even think of that. And that's, that's perfect. It's like, it's pretty like, yeah, my son, when uh, the Syrian refugee crisis was, um, you know, front page news for a while, I think he was three, he was three or four, but he was very young. And we had talked, um, he was getting into maps at that time. So we talked about, you know, where they were going. Like, you know, we looked at the chart and he was too young to really understand anything that was going on. But he did see the iconic image that everyone saw um, of, you know, the you know, toddler preschool age child, like washed up on the shore and, um, that had drowned. And my son was like, do you know what I wish mom? And I was like, what? He was like, I wish that they had mermaids in Syria to help people if they fall out of boats. And again, I just was like, like, I, like, like there is something that, um, looking at images, even from a young age and, um, connecting the pieces of, and, good images, right? Because if you just look at like duck face photos, you're going to be desensitized, I think, to the world. But like, (laughs) like, I do think that is the downside of social media is there's a tendency to desensitize people. But I think if you're looking at photographs that have been made um, with the intention of making people care, like even young people pick up on it. And it's, um, it's a gateway for empathy. Yeah, I like that. A gateway to empathy. What role do you think photojournalism can play in addressing issues of truth, transparency, and justice today? Mm. 
Well, and truth is such a, I struggle with that word so much because everything is so relative. <laughs> um, but, um, but in terms of, you know, justice and transparency, I think that, I think in a lot of ways, photojournalism's job is to make people care about the the facts of the story because a lot of photojournalism it can show you something but it's um like it's not going to give you numbers it's not going to you know um it's not going to give you these like factual parts of the narrative that we need to change it but i so i i feel like photojournalism's role is to show injustice in a way that is human and connects people that struggle with the facts of the thing so that then they care about the facts of the thing, if that makes sense. So I think it's very hard for people to recognize inequity if they are in a majority part of the culture or, you know, in a different class strata, um, because it, it seems like to equalize things means to disrupt their their life's work and it it for them it feels like it's diminishing something um when in reality it's just that they didn't realize the you know that they <laughs> that they had a kind of power this whole time um and it, it's fine to equalize it it it's more than fair you know but so i feel like photojournalism's role is kind of to just show what inequity feels like and what it means. And um, also to capture, you know, this kind of uprising that has always been happening, but is happening more now of, you know, angry white America that um, does feel disenfranchised. And in a capitalist, you know, classist society, it's easy to feel disenfranchised if you haven't gotten yours, you know, but I think that there is a, the documentation right now that needs to happen that shows kind of the divisions where we're at and makes people care about them is invaluable. What do you think we gain by including a wider spectrum of voices in the media? I think that the storytelling is absolutely different. Um, and this is where objectivity is, um, it only goes so far because we all are coming into the room with what we know and, um, our associations with everything in the room are based on what we know, like we're creatures that operate and function from memory, like mainly, you know, it's how the whole brain works. And so it's like, if you diversify the voices that are telling the narratives and are writing history, we are going to have a history that is more reflective of what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, and if you read the history books or I'm hoping that they're changing, but I still see some go by in the school system that are not updated. Yeah. Um, but if you look at, um, okay, so this is an example. So um, going back to my kids, but so they have to read the scholastics like, you know, magazine, which I think has been around since I was a kid. So it's old. And um, my son had to read it like every week or every other week in class. And he had one that was about symbolism and it was focusing on the bald eagle. And, and the whole thing is really just teaching the kids about what a symbol is and what symbolism means. So it's like, that's the lesson. But the magazine used the bald eagle as an example of symbolism. And so it like talked about how the bald eagle represents, you know, freedom, freedom from persecution and liberty and justice for everybody. And my son was like, but so when 
when the United States of America became the United States of America, like not everyone was free because they took things from native people. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was like, so what does that make you think? And he said that this wasn't written by a native person. And I was like, exactly. Yeah. So I feel like diversifying who is telling the story. It again, even if someone is trying to be as objective as they possibly can be, like there is a there will be a difference in somebody photographing, you know, a, a deep women's issue that is a woman versus that same story being shot by a man. Um, the same goes in community of color and um, really specific, you know, cultural communities. And it's not to say, again, I don't think that, you know, white people should just photograph white things or, you know, people of color should just photograph people of color things. Like, you know what I mean? I don't think that way, but I do think that the more voices that we have in the industry, the more angles we're going to have on our existence. So that will push change. And not only that, but it obviously empowers you know, people to get paid to do work that is meaningful too. So there's just like, there's a whole, there's a million layers to why I think <laughs> it shouldn't just be a white game. <laughs> you know, how do you focus on storytelling in your work? How do I focus on it? Um, in terms of, um, in terms of how do I pick stories or um, how do I think about stories? I think both. I... So, I mean, sometimes I'm just assigned the story and then, and then when I'm there, you know, I'm looking for what, um, how to visually represent a beginning, middle and end in some way. And if it's not that kind of story, then, um, and it's a profile or it's an essay, then how do I, you know, just explore the topic in some way visually. But, um, I'm usually looking for big, bigger projects, or I have an idea for a, a big, like long meaty thing to work on and then I'm looking for little stories within it that are going to make up that bigger um, concept so so that's kind of where I start and then in the finding of the stories it's you know I go through the facts of the thing first and I'm looking at um, what are the points that I need to factually or I have to visually represent that are facts and that's like the science journalism part of it. And then the how part comes into the conversations that I have in exploring that fact and then finding, you know, the right person. And then other times like stories just, um, they just appear. Um, there's this long-term body of work that I've been making for six years and has become increasingly just intimate and intertwined about this family, or mainly this woman that found out that at 20 weeks in her pregnancy that her child was going to have this very rare syndrome that wouldn't affect her child cognitively, but would be a lifelong, likely fatal um, illness, and that she might not survive the birth, and she would have less than a 15% chance of surviving the first year. And this woman reached out to me because I've been exploring birth in Alaska um, for a handful of years, and she is a nurse that was acquainted with that work or that um, project. And she told me her story and she was like, you know, I've decided to have her anyways. and I'm not pro-life, um, but I just feel like I, I'm going to have her. And, um, you know, would you be interested in documenting the birth? It has to be out of state. Um, it would, would you be interested in having it be part of your project? And I was like, yeah, like obviously you don't say no when mm -hmm. there's someone when you can be of service in any way. And yeah. this person is like, you know, my birth 
this might be the only time we have together. Like this, my baby might not live. So maybe her story will have, will have reach. And so she tells me all this and I was like, well, but you know, you kind of sound like you have like your own story too. Would you be open to talking about that after we see how the birth goes? And she was, and now it's been six years and we've documented all kinds of life in the last six years. And so it's just been this kind of, um, it's not the short story anymore. You know, it's not the, we have this situation in this. It's now this long, complex story that has stories within it um, about the medical system, about um, families that have um, a child that has a diagnosis like this, about like the economics of this. Like there's so many sub stories now within it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't know. So I guess I usually start with either something very pointed that has um, – that has an emotional, spiritual, intellectual interest, something that it pulls me there. Or I start with the big idea and I kind of whittle it down. Um, there's another project that I'm working on right now in the lower 48 primarily on communities that have less than 100 people. And I wanted to do that project since I was 19 in college. So <laughs> it took many years to be able to like have the resources and get the funding and and even feel within myself like I was in a place to make that work. But um, so that one's like, there's all these little sub stories within it, but it's just under this umbrella of what a small, really small town America look like. <laughs> and like, and that's just, that is just the question and it's super basic. Um, and uh, it's just reaching out and spending time with people and, you know, spending a lot of time on the road and in the car Mm -hmm. and it's really um but it's but at the end of it you know that is not a narrative in the same way that some of these other stories are it's more like just documenting this place and time and um again what does small town america look like because we use that phrase a lot you know um (laughs) what's the smallest town america look like (laughs) do you think any of these stories that you examine in your work are any of them indicative or representative of our time? Um, I think, I mean, I think so, just because it's all happening now. It's so it's like if, like, like, and we don't even know what it means for our time right now, which is the other wonderful thing about photography. Um, like every time I think, like, should I make this photo? And it's like, a, it's just a photo and in my day. I'm somewhere around town and I decide not to make it, I usually go back and make it. And it's because I, I give myself this conversation of like, ah, yeah, you got to get out the camera. You got to do it. But it's because whatever that moment was, I'm like, I don't even know what that moment means yet, but in 20 years, it'll mean something. And so, um, like, I think that, um, so this, the body of work that's up in the museum now to become a person was kind of made specifically for like it being of this time. And um, also like, I think I will continue to make that work throughout my life while I'm here. But um, I also hope that um, I hope to in some way work with young people so that they are making that work and maybe it collaborates in some way in the future. But, um, but that entire project is about coming of age in indigenous rural Alaska and like now in this time, where technology is is very accessible in the state, even in the smallest communities, which even 10 years ago, it was less like functional, just less rampant. And um, so looking at this time of change in technology and communication, 
how that influences the youth, how colonization and assimilation are playing out with added um, information coming in and um, just how rapidly the gap between youths and elders is becoming with like the quicker change. So it like, it had to be a thing about our time right now, you know? Um, but I feel like in general, like all of the work I'm making right now in some way will be about this time. And I just might not know what, it, how it is yet. <laughs> That's great. Isn't it? It is. To be able to look back on your work and five, 10, 15, 20 years later, you realize that it has a new meaning or a different meaning. Absolutely. I mean, the pandemic right now is, um, I have this body of work, which it's like just slowly evolving. And I think that like a hundred photographers will have a body of work with the same name, but it's called the new normal. And it's all of these like not straight photojournalism photos. Cause I just, I've photographed so many people getting swabbed or stabbed or ma like people in masks. It's like so uninteresting to look at right now, but, um, it's more about these, like the weirder kind of like darker fear, fearful feeling of the time, but mm -hmm. also like the levity of how strange the time is. And, um, and there are photos I'm just making for me. Like it is a personal project. And if I decide to do something with it or do a show with it, it'll be because it looks like something that I want to do that with. But um, but those images to me are like, I know that they are the ones I will come back to in 50 years when I'm thinking about what the pandemic was like, um, more so than the ones that were more reportage style. You know, what just came to mind is I was on a walk the other day and I saw a bus filled with students and they were all wearing masks. So I was walking and then I just saw this side profile, even some, you know, some were turned toward the sidewalk, but I was like, that is an image. That is a photograph right now that is so indicative of this time in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is something about the children in the masks specifically that just really gets me. <laughs> um and in a school bus no less totally. you know like you've been talking about there's just so many different variables that are involved in that story involved in that picture absolutely absolutely okay so i i have a few more questions for you go for it this is great it's fun <laughs> how are you working to support conversations around diversity in film and photography um, so the museum is actually, um, has helped to fund and partner with a project that, um, Brian Adams and I are working on called show and tell. So that application will go live on Monday, the 15th of February. And we are, we are looking for six people of color, um, and half, uh, must be women who are already making images, um, wherever they are in their community. And this is like anywhere in the state. Um, we would like two people to be from rural Alaska, if, at least if possible. But um, we basically want to work with six people kind of intensively um, and distantly over the course of a year to develop one kind of longer form or ma more major for them uh, project, but then also work with them on small, smaller like projects um, throughout just to be able to crit work and, um, you know, go over how to make 
stronger images in the stories that they're making, but then additionally to connect them with our connections in like New York and Paris and London, like just around the world and um, kind of give them the opportunity to meet the people that will help them get their work out there. Um, And whether or not they are ready after a year to be, you know, going on assignment for somebody or not, doesn't really matter. Like it's that it's the fact that they will have two mentors here that can work with them, but then also to, you know, kind of give them the access to the people that are harder to access. If you are coming from here and maybe you didn't study photojournalism in college and maybe you didn't have that linear um, way in. Mm -hmm. So basically we want to start that um, this year. It'll be the inaugural year and then we may continue it after that. And it kind of just depends on what the interest is and um, who applies. Um, because we are trying, we, we don't really want to have it be a photo one-on-one class. It has to be somebody who in some way has, you know, um, the gear or is really solid on an iPhone because there are magazine covers made on iPhones and that, that can be somebody's gateway into something. Um, but, um, basically we just want to be working with people that are already making the images and already like, you know, trying to figure out how to make the story. And then, um, and then build on that and then take them through the process of, okay, so now you're, you're learning how to make the story. Now this is how you can fund more story making, like through grant writing and then also through networking, finding, figuring out how to pitch, figuring out how to talk to editors. And so, so that is the main thing that I am working on currently. And then, you know, additionally to that, it's just like, um, referring, like making referrals based on, you know, who is the most appropriate person for a given project. Or if someone asks me, Hey, do you know someone in so-and-so or, or such a place? And like, um, asking about what the story is and like, I'm going to refer this person of, you know, this nationality, this race, this person who's going to have this special lens for it. And I think that's something we can all be doing in our, um, in our practice. And again, it's complicated because we're all making money doing this too. So like we're all trying to live and uh, further voices. But I think that it's, there is more than enough work out there <laughs> and stories to tell. You know, and I think that that expanding that, that conversation surrounding diversity in film and photography, I think that certain projects like the one you were talking about with the museum the to become a person correct mm-hmm. yeah i think that that um you're conveying those those ideas through that as well so you know when you see someone who looks like you doing the thing that you want to do it gives you motivation and inspiration to pursue that thing absolutely totally and it's like the, I mean, that's like the the reason that I will post photos of my children or of me working with children <laughs> as well, just because I'm like, there aren't a ton of mom photojournalists. Like it's becoming slightly more normal, but there just aren't a ton. And um, that's like the one thing that I can be like, well, like you can do it. Like <laughs> this is what it looks like, Yeah. but you can do it. And um, it should be normalized. Like we shouldn't be telling um, undergraduates that they have to choose. And so many of my friends that are ha- struggling to have children in their 40s are, you know, resentful of the fact that they 
waited and like they you know tried to have the career so that they could have the baby and um and then i think yeah like brian is like he's in new pack and he is um he was in the right place at the right time and had like come up in the industry um just through his own like passion and like mm-hmm. you know self-education and like you know a high school class too and skateboarding and all of that but um you know he's doing it and so to me it's like such an he is such an important person in this conversation in the sense that like there are a ton of you know young native people that can see themselves doing what he just doing you know just like you know obama was the first president that a whole generation of people in the u.s saw or knew could be a president. So to mm-hmm. imagine what it must feel like to know that the president is a black man and that's all you know, uh, like that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so I totally agree with you. <laughs> so in all your travels and your work throughout Alaska, what kinds of things have you learned about place and people in Alaska? Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, so I, when I moved up to Alaska originally, I had no idea like (laughs) about anything. I had no idea what um, a village looked like. I had no idea what whale tasted like um, or seal or bear or any of these other foods that I've been introduced to. I had no idea what Inupak, Yupik, Siberian Yupik, which in like languages sounded like um, or the nuances between all of those cultures. I had never ridden on so many little planes so often. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I had never ridden on a dog sled. I'd never driven a snow machine. Um, Like there are, there are so many worlds that people have let me visit in their personal lives and then in their, within their communities and their culture and so much hospitality and, um, sharing of information and like I can't even I cannot even begin to talk about how much I've learned from traveling in Alaska or or even nature like I mean I was so afraid of nature generally before I lived here (laughs) and now I'm like a wild woman that goes out like solo backpacking and like (laughs) for long stints and um so I mean the people the place itself um the ability to be somewhere where you feel like you could actually get lost and the ability to be in a community that is always looking at you and making sure that you're going to survive, like, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is that you're doing, like, um, there's always someone throwing an extra parka on me or someone like trying to feed me extra stuff, you know, there's, um, so I think just about like, I mean, historically I can't even begin to, explain how much I've learned there, um, culturally, how many things I've learned, um, like emotionally, socially, spiritually, all of those things too. Um, I just, I think I've learned a lot about like, uh, I think the most impactful thing is about the way people are in, um, small places where, you know, the addition or the loss of somebody is really felt. And, um, like in terms of looking at a community, like a family and, um, how people take care of each other, how people commit to taking care of each other, how people commit to, you know, staying in the place and fighting for the place. Um, even though it's logistically complicated to be in, 
and fighting for their way of life. Um, there's just, I don't know, I could gush for a long time, but Alaska is has been such a wonderful, eye-opening experience that I had no idea would be this, so... <laughs> For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.